Hello, and welcome to this Rash Decisions podcast, where we'll be looking at skin-related issues and treatments in an interesting and informed way. I'm Dr. Roger Henderson, a GP with a long-standing interest in this area of health. And I'm Dr. George Moncrief. I was also a GP, though I retired from my practice, and I was the chair of the Dermatology Council for England. Today's podcast is the second in a three-part podcast on atopic eczema. Last time, we talked about the essentials of atopic eczema, the epidemiology and how it looks, and how we make the diagnosis. And this time, we'll be talking about how best to treat eczema, including assessment, key principles, and medical treatments. So, George, some people, I suppose, might think that assessing atopic eczema is simply a matter of looking at someone's skin and then both diagnosing if eczema is present or not and then deciding how severe or otherwise it might be. And that would be lovely in a perfect world. But I think you and I both know that it's not a perfect world and we both know different, don't we, in terms of assessment? Absolutely, yes. We Medicine is much more than just taking a look, making a diagnosis and taking things from there. It, you're dealing with a person. And so we need to sit back and allow them to give us their story. So remember just to have open body language and just ask open questions like, tell me about things or how are things going? And then listen, listen for clues to bullying, sleep disturbance. In fact, the whole family um, can have problems with their sleep if, if somebody's got bad atopic eczema. And so listen for clues to depression or anxiety. These are all fundamental to the management of your patient with atopic eczema. It can have an impact on education, relationships, career decisions. So all of that needs to be thought about as well. But I would also be wanting to see, tell me what you have you been using to date? What have you found that works? What helps? What has made it worse? What are you using over the counter? Tell me how you wash. All these things we need to go through. But then once you've decided you are dealing with eczema, I think it's really useful just to give the patient one of these questionnaires, things like POEM, the patient-oriented eczema measure. This was designed by Hal Williams from Nottingham and it asks how symptoms have been over the last week, how severe the itch has been, sleep disturbance and all those sorts of questions. And patients can just put a tick in the different boxes and from that you can get a really useful eczema measure, how severe their eczema is. In fact, Fontas Health have created a wonderful app which is free to download called My Skin Health, the Mind Skin Health app. And amongst the things that that offers, it offers a weekly reminder for the patient to do a poem. So they can see what, how their score's changing. And if they can see it's going down, they, they, they realize that they need to deal with that, nip it in the bud if they can. It also has an opportunity to record every possible topical treatment um, that is, is out there. They can even upload images, which is very easy from the app to share with a healthcare professional if they wanted to. And those images can then be used to help to create an easy score, an eczema assessment and severity index. I have to say, that's not an assessment that I personally use in general practice, but it's very much used in secondary care and certainly for studies and things and whether the patient needs to go onto a biologic. But I, I think the easy score is probably too much for general practice. 
I prefer just to make an assessment. Is it mild, moderate, or severe? I'm not sure what you do, Roger. Do you do similar to that? I, 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 I do. And I would also go right back to the start of what you were saying there, George, which, which is really ask the patient, why have you come today? A very wise old GP once said to me, always ask or at least think about why that patient sitting in front of you has decided to come and sit in front of you today and certainly with with eczema um, if you do ask that question i'm always surprised at how often there is a life event there is a trigger there may be a relationship issue someone may have said something nasty or they may have been bullied there's something that's triggered them to have finally had enough of putting up with their eczema and that's what's um, brought brought them to you and that can be helpful exactly as you've said you know looking at the whole person here i mean i think it is worth also mentioning i think 2020 the parliamentary all party uh, group on on mental health uh, and skin dis disorders looked at the impact of dry skin conditions on the mental health of people um, with dry skin obviously including eczema and a staggering 98 percent of people with a dry skin condition said it adversely affected and impacted on their mental health and their self esteem and certainly in all my education uh, as a young student and as a young doctor uh, about um, skin conditions this, this the psychodermatology of condition like eczema was never mentioned in fact i don't think it was even thought of and i suppose when we're assessing a patient you've got to sort of always have that at the back of your mind which i know that we we both do but going back to your question yes i tend to be fairly simplistic here mild moderate severe and i and, and the questionnaires can be very helpful but usually if, if you've seen enough eczema you can tell just from looking at it as to what severity it is um but interestingly um if you've got severe um uh, atopic dermatitis i think i'm right in saying there is also an arteriosclerotic link am i right with that well, you are and i was going to come on to that yes uh certainly moderate or severe eczema carries a, a frighteningly high risk of arteriosclerosis um but both heart attacks sudden death and strokes so uh i think the figures are sort of over 50 percent increased risk for those sorts of conditions a study do, we know from why? do we know why well, it's the inf I'm almost certainly it's due to the inflammation. Inflammation is bad for the arteries. We've known that for years with rheumatoid and with lupus, for example. Um, they have accelerated arteriosclerosis. We see that in psoriasis. The chronic inflammatory load accelerates arteriosclerosis, probably through things like extra variant A, 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 a mediator for that. So inflammation is bad for your arteries, and, and, and eczema is certainly a, a severely inflammatory disorder. So I'm sure that's a large part of that story, which really means that another part of my assessment, which I was going to come on to, is that I don't think secondary care do cue risks for heart disease. And so I certainly would suggest that anybody with moderate or severe eczema, not necessarily in children, but in an adult, I would do their cue risk and take that into account when I'm assessing their overall health. I think that's a top tip um, uh, and, and I've started doing that. I confess sort of uh, several years ago I didn't, but I, when I became aware of, of that risk, especially if you then have a, an, uh, some, a smoker with eczema perhaps sitting in front of you or someone who's had a past um, MI um, or we know that they've got um, uh, coronary heart disease, um, it is certainly worth just putting into the mix if you're seeing them 
with 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 dry skin or, or with eczema. I mean, the key principles, I suppose, um, of um, uh, treating or thinking about managing eczema, really they they haven't changed for, 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 for decades, but we have to keep repeating them because people either haven't been told by a healthcare professional or they've forgotten what we've said if we have told them. So I'm thinking of things like patient education, demolience, of which more later, keeping your nails short so you're not scratching either when you're awake or when you're asleep and, and avoiding provoking factors we were both discussing um the patients sitting in front of us but of course a lot of general practice now is done remotely and that's a very desirable option very often um, for both the patient and the doctor it can be very effective but uh, we don't always have the chance to to examine our patients as well as we can when they're there in front of us and i think dermatology is a very tactile field i think touch and so with my patient's permission i like to just wash my hands and then feel their skin look touch and feel. I think it can make such a difference to the patient that we, we're, we're not afraid that they're contagious. And actually by touching their skin and having that physical contact, I think you and the patient are in a very much stronger position to, to trust each other. And I'm looking for generalized dryness, generalized roughness of the skin, the shiny nails that you've mentioned from chronically rubbing. I'm looking for areas of prurigo where they've actually torn the skin and got, that they prefer the pain of tearing the skin to the itch. So I'm looking for that general dryness. I'm looking at the patches of eczema that they, they are showing me, and I look for the other areas that are often affected by atopic eczema, which we talked about in the last part of the podcast. You might, for example, see a Denny Morgan fold. That's the double line, the double crease under the lower eyelid from chronically rubbing the eye. And um, that, that's just a sign of chronically scratching and rubbing. Or you might see lichenification, thickening of the dermal structures with exaggeration of the skin markings. So it is very much a, a, a tactile area. And I think that's a very important part of the assessment because it, it also develops that bond with the patient. But yeah, coming on to the management I think that's absolutely right, George. And it, you raise a very interesting point about remote consultations, which you know obviously um, have come out of nowhere, um, really, um, with the, the the degree that they're occurring now post COVID and, and because of COVID. And I found that um, asking patients to send in photographs of their skin um, and images of their skin conditions can be helpful. But there's a real caveat to this, which is it's only as good as the technology is either end. So either the technology in, in primary care isn't quite good enough for you to get a really high quality image, or in my experience, more commonly, despite the patient doing their very best, the image that they're sending over really doesn't give you the information that you need as to what's going on. And you, you always then have to say, I've got to see this face to face. So there are limitations with um, the, the remote consultations and dermatology um, that, uh, that it's not a catch all. It, it's not that everybody who sends a photo in will get an instant diagnosis. And certainly that's become crystal clear to me uh, in the last year or two. In, absolutely. I was so frustrated with my remote consultations, seeing images that were so totally out of focus. I was struggling to determine whether it was skin at all, let alone whether it's on a human body. And so quality of images and and 
the information that comes to you is really a major issue with remote consulting. I think people are beginning to get it a bit better. But I created my own information for patients leaflet when I wanted to get quality images. And that's available. And I can, I can make it available through this if you wish. Uh, but there are, you can go to the PCDS website, www.pcds, Primary Care Dermatology Society, pcds.org.uk, and they have an information sheet there for patients um, to tell them how to take an image. So, for example, selfies are unlikely to be adequate. You almost certainly need somebody else to take the image, and it needs to be in quality light, ideally daylight, and so on. And, and so if you get quality images, you can often make the diagnosis and certainly for review a, a fairly effective way. But this is another whole topic, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and I think it's a really, one we may come, may come back to, but it, it's, it's really... Um, um, shows the modern way that we're working and the limitations as well as some of the positives that, that it can have so if we've got our patient in front of us and we're fairly happy that they've got um eczema we know what sort of severity we're we're, we're talking about we'll be talking to them then about the key principles because obviously educating the patient about eczema is almost as important if not as important as as how we treat them so we're educating the patient as one of the key principles here we're telling them about keeping their nails short having enough water to drink to keep nicely hydrated um, we're looking again at at perhaps the number one thing we're going to keep coming back to repeatedly at the risk of being boring about it which is emollients emollients and more emollients um, and I suspect you would go along with that as well as avoiding provoking factors such as modern detergents I guess I couldn't agree with you more um, the first thing I say to my patients is tell me how do you wash and then I listen and they often look aghast and I say well okay do you do you have a shower or do you have a bath do you have one a day, two a day? How long are you in the shower, in the bath? And what are you washing yourself with? Do you use shower gel? Do you use shampoo and allow that to rinse over all your skin? Do you ever have a bubble bath? And I go on to say, because your eczema will never settle unless you stop all detergents, i.e. shower gels, soaps, shampoos, or even bubble bath. It will never get better. These are very unnatural things. And they look astonished at that. So I quickly go on to say, I'd like you to wash with an emollient soap substitute. So I'm, I'm very happy for you to be in water. That hydrates the skin. That's good for you. Not too long and not too hot. So a warm to tepid shower is ideal. Um, five to 10 minutes is absolutely perfect. And this is an opportunity for you to hydrate your skin and to use an emollient soap substitute. And then when you come, and, and you can, if it, you like, put that on before you go in the shower. You may need to warn the patient or, or before they get into the bath. You may need to warn them that this will render the shower tray or the bath dangerously slippery for them and perhaps the next person going in there. And it will, in time, clog up the drain. So they may need to attend to the drains. But that's the first thing. If they want to wash their hair, wash your hair. But don't rush, wash your scalp necessarily, particularly getting scalp eczema. And for goodness sake, do not let that shampoo from your hair rinse over your face or over your skin. At the very least, lean right forward and rinse it off your body, not onto your body. Um, 
and ideally better still is lean back in, in, in a sink and get somebody else to help to wash your hair. Um, but definitely wash, but wash with an emollient soap substitute. When you come out of the bath or the shower, your skin is warm and lovely and moist, and you want to trap that moisture in the skin. So this is a golden opportunity to apply a quality leave-on emollient um, so that you can cover the whole skin very quickly and very easily with that while you're standing on a towel, for example, and just cover the whole skin. Because the whole skin is abnormal in eczema. The whole skin has an abnormal microbiome. The whole skin has a higher pH. And these emollients help to rebalance that pH back to the normal, mildly acidic mantle and they the whole skin is drier so the whole skin needs emollients and that's why nice in their in their guideline for managing atopic eczema for example in children in 2000 i think it's 2008 said they expect a child to get through half a 500 gram tub a week that's because they're covering their whole skin you're not just putting it on where you've got the eczema of course these leave-on emollients they're not all the same by any means and they, they're different from the point of view of things like tulle, which is trans-epidermal water loss, how long they protect the skin from losing water. Some only cause protection for a couple of hours, others for over 24 hours. So that has big implications. For example, if somebody in a nursing home or a child, they're, they're undressed once a day at least. They have had a bath or a shower usually once a day. It's great to put an emollient that you know will then last for 24 hours. Mm. Very much better than having an emollient that two hours later is no longer preventing water loss. But patients will only use the emollient that they like on their skin. They're very particular about this. And there's no point us saying this is the best emollient if actually they say, I can't, don't like the, state, the feel of it or the smell of it or the look of it or whatever. So patient preference is absolutely critical. And then of course, as we talked about in the first podcast, emollients are a great vehicle for bringing additional anti-inflammatory agents onto the skin like nicotinamide or colloidal oat. The, I have to say, the Aproderm range are my, probably my absolute favorite. Um, they, they have a lovely range from um, simple Aproderm emollient cream, which is superb as a leave-on, but it can be used as a soap substitute, um, through to the gel, which again can be used as a soap substitute or as a leave-on. Um, although it's a gel, it doesn't look like a gel. It, it's white and it's cream-like, but it's just a little bit more shiny. Um, through to the very much more sophisticated Aproderm colloidal oat, which looks very similar to Aveeno, but we, we're not going to go into these in great detail here. Suffice to say that if you would like to, your patient to make an informed choice about which emollient they like, we have got now the Aproderm emollient starter pack, which you can prescribe. And then the patient can take those away. They're, they're 60 to 50 gram sample sizes. And they can then come back and say, I really like the Aproderm colloidal oat. And you can then confidently prescribe them the quantities that they need. And I think one of the problems I think we talked about last time is that we, we don't always give patients enough for them to use them the way we expect them to. And I, I often prescribe them in several kilograms per month. Um, if you want more details about my thoughts on emollients, though, can I direct you to the um, emollient table I designed in the two th September 2022 um, 
uh, one of the journals in Pulse. Um, and this is much more detail we covered last time. And I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not just saying this, George, it is absolutely excellent. And it is in my uh, the drawer uh, of my surgery. And I'll often have it next to me when I'm trying to decide which uh, emollient to use. And the Aproderma Starter Pack range, as you say, is 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 excellent. And as a man with no uh, hair on his on his face, or indeed on his head, um, it has become my daily moisturizer. <laughs> and, uh, and, and excellent it is, is too. Isn't it great that, they, that, that Francis have come up with that initiative? I mean, this is such an excellent thing to, to have done. And I think I, I applaud them for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so perhaps the message from the wayside pulpit, um, just 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 finishing off with emollients, um, are the, the three E's. You know, emollients, emollients, emollients. So, so when we when we're talking to a patient, when we're thinking about our patients with eczema, emollients must always be at the at the top of our uh, of our thinking. So, to everyone listening, we do hope you find this second podcast on eczema informative and interesting. George and I look forward to you joining us in our next Rash Decision episode in three weeks time when we'll continue covering treatments including topical steroids and immunomodulators. We'll also look at the roles of vitamin D and antihistamines in the eczema management process as well as when to refer to secondary care. Once again we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Aproderm, for all the help in putting these Rash Decision podcasts together. So until the next time, it's goodbye from George. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>